I don't know if you noticed or not this morning, but, but Amy was actually playing on the keyboard this morning, and uh, besides Ocean. So she's been expanding her giftedness and working on her piano skills, and so we appreciate that, and Ryan and Ernie as well. So thank you. <laughs> I'm going to pay for that later again, as I'm used to that. So welcome. There's so many of you visiting today, and I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for coming today. We're excited about that. Just to give you a little disclaimer right up front, because if you're not used to uh, the Point Way family, you might kind of wonder what's going on, but we do a lot of interacting. It's kind of an interactive sermon, so when I ask a question, I'm going to expect an answer. I'm not very good at rhetorical questions, so I'll hang out here for a while until I get an answer, Um, but also it's a help to me, right? I I need that help. I was uh, telling someone I've got a couple of messages ahead because I've got some speaking to their youth next uh, weekend, actually at Jared's church. Um, Jared asked me to, to speak at their youth conference. And I said, Jared, you want your dad to come speak at a youth conference? Why would that be? And he goes, well, dad, because my number one choice backed out. <laughs> and if that wasn't bad enough, his number two choice backed out. And so dad was on the bottom of that list, or at least number three. I don't know. I'll take it as a positive. But So I'm speaking at a youth conference, and he says, well, dad, you're here. Why not you just speak on Sunday? That way I can have the Sunday off as well. And so I've got four messages in my head. So if I start talking about somewhere else in the Bible, you'll, you know, someone will correct me if it's Elijah or Titus, because those are the messages that are upcoming. But I think, if I'm not mistaken, we are still in the book of Samuel, right? And now we've been studying Samuel for some time now. We've been working through the life of Samuel from the beginning to where he is now. But who is the main character in the book of Samuel? Who are we really focusing on? God. And not just God, but what about God? His... Huh? Wow, we got quiet all of a sudden. Man, all right, we're slipping up a little bit. God's... We even sang about Jesus... Job mentioned it, faithfulness. All right, well, I got more work to do. All right, God's faithfulness throughout the Bible, right? We see that over and over and over again, how faithful he is. And it's not dependent upon us, right? We can be unfaithful, yet God is still faithful. Amen, right? We can count on that. If nothing else, we can count on that. God is going to be faithful to his word, to what he said, his promises. That's a given. Take it to the bank. It's set. It's not dependent on us. And that's reassuring and also comforting in many times because, again, sometimes we don't feel it, we don't realize it, but God is always faithful. So that's kind of the, the big picture. Now, if you're visiting, don't worry. We're all the way up to chapter 11, but I'm going to try to catch you up a little bit. I'm going to give you a little bit of what we've been... So we learned in chapter 1, right, it's great to have two wives, right? Some of you are going, what, Charlie, what have you been preaching? No, that didn't work. It didn't work then. It certainly wouldn't work today. That was a lot of W's in a row. It wasn't even ours. I was struggling, right? Two wives does not work. There was animosity in the home. There was fighting. But Samuel's mom, Hannah, was devout, was faithful, and she went to God and asked God for a son, and God graciously gave her that. And Hannah had made a vow to the Lord, and she dedicated Samuel to a life of ministry, to the temple, right? And so she turned him over. She kept her word, 
and turned him over to that, to a, to a great priest, Eli, right? Eli was the, the best role model for Samuel, right, growing up? No, no. Sarcasm comes with this, just in case you, you didn't catch that part either. That, that's part of my normal, everyday talk. But no, right? Eli started out good, but as he got later on in years, he allowed his two great sons, or not so great, right? Allowed them to take over, and he didn't correct them, and God judged him for it. We also learned that God judged him very harshly with a no-name prophet, but judged him that he would die and his sons would die, and his line would no longer continue. And Samuel ends up taking over that role. I've also mentioned that Samuel was a little unique, right? Samuel is in that time period in the Bible where judges, right? There's judges going on, there's prophets going on, there's priests going on, there's a lot going on, and Samuel is that transition into kings, right? The beginning of the kings comes through Samuel and through that appointment, right? Who becomes the first king of Israel? Saul, right? And we've been, been studying that, right? Saul was out chasing donkeys. You knew I wasn't going to get away from talking about donkeys, right? 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 Saul was out chasing donkeys for his dad, and God put that call and, and put Samuel in that position to anoint Saul. Now, why did the people want a king? To be like other nations. Was that part of God's plan? Is that what God wanted for them? No. No, it showed their hearts, right? They wanted to be like other nations, which is just the opposite of what God wanted for them. God wanted them to be different. He wanted to be them, him, the, the people that would show God, point them to God. And anytime they got away from that, they got into trouble. Kind of can relate that to our own lives, right? We're as believers in Christ to represent Christ. Right? We should, people should come to us and say, what do you have different in your life that I don't have? should be an automatic magnet, but sometimes it's not. And so we need to be aware of that, right? But we are always pointing, point way, pointing the way to Jesus, right? I do love that about our name. I didn't come up with it. That was well, well before I was here. Israel was supposed to be the same, but they wanted to be like other nations. They wanted a king, someone to rule over them. Uh, king doesn't cost anything, right? We looked at that, right? Costs a lot, right? Samuel even said, hey, it's going to cost you a tenth of all your goods, the first fruits. It's going to cost you your sons, your daughters. It takes a lot to run king slash government, right? Again, we related that as well to our own lives today. We, we pay taxes and we represent it. It takes a lot to keep that all going in Washington and even in our states, Needs a lot of prayer around that. And so, as I also mentioned, Saul doesn't just become king on day one. Right? We've been working, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've been working on that process. Samuel announces it. They draw lots. They find Saul. Saul's a tall, good-looking guy. He's the one. But it's still not to that point yet where he's been installed as the king. And last time when we talked about Samuel, we found out that not everybody recognized him as kings. In fact, they, they called him scoundrels, right? There were some scoundrels who said, hey, why Saul? Why not us? Probably some jealousy going on. 
And so that brings us where we are today. We're on chapter 11. And like I said, if you're visiting, you're right now with the rest of us. We're on the same plane, we're on the same boat, and now we can begin with chapter 11, verse 1. Nahash, the Amorite, went up and besieged Jezbez, Gilead. All the men of Jebez said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we will be subject to you. Huh, we have a new enemy, right? Again, if you've been with us, we talked about the Philistines, right? The Philistines were the enemies, and they defeated them. It took some time, but they defeated them. God threw them into chaos, and they were defeated. And now there's another enemy, the Amorites, which were actually on the other side, right? Israel was in the middle. The Philistines were to the west, and the Amorites are to the east. They're coming from the other side of things, the, the border, and it's a group that's coming up and said, hey, we're going to take over your portion of land. We're going to make you treaty. We're going to make a treaty with us, but we're going, to, we're going to rule over you. And again, remember, at this time, all the tribes are separated. They're not united. They're, it's just one little outpost, and they're at the furthest end of this. And so as they're invading, they're, they're right up on their doorstep. And they're not just going to wipe them out, but they're going to Try to make peace. Move the line, if you say, a little bit. Verse 2 says, But Nahash, the Amorite, replied, I will make a treaty with you on one condition, that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. That doesn't sound like a great treaty to me. I'm not, I'm not too keen. I, I kind of need my right eye, right? And it's interesting, it's the right eye, not the left eye, because... Those that do archery, right? What do you, most of us that are right-handed, right right? We use our right eye for everything, to take aim, to see, right? But it would bring disgrace on them, right? It's, it was common practice in that day. If you didn't only, if you made a treaty, you needed to kind of weaken them a little bit. Otherwise, the, the treaty's not going to hold. It's going to be a constant animosity. And so this is a tough condition, really. This is not not something they're asking that's easy. They're, they're really requiring something here to, to gouge out their right eye, would disable them and make them weak. The elders, verse 3 says, of Jabez said to him, give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender you, surrender to you. Right? They're not putting up much of a fight. They're just they're kind of trying to negotiate this treaty a little bit. They don't like the terms, but they're negotiating the fact that they're saying, hey, give us seven days. Give us a little bit more time. Now, obviously, the Amorites didn't think there was much of a threat because, again, if you're a battle commander, you're not going to give them more time, although we don't know the backstory, right? Maybe the Amorites weren't quite ready to overtake them yet, but as they were looking over the nation of Israel at this time, they see these groups are scattered. This is kind of the, the outer edge. They're not united. So it's probably seven days makes no difference one way or the other. And so they allow them the seven days to send out messengers as hope that someone will come and rescue them or deliver them. I told you a bit earlier, right? We're coming out of the time of Judges. Well, that was a typical cycle for Israel, right? They would get into trouble. There would be a battle. God would discipline them. He was hoping someone would come and deliver them. 
And so this group is hoping for the same thing, that someone's going to rise up and save them. I'm sure their natural inclination was that Samuel will be the one. Samuel will be the one that will come. Although there's some confusion because we have a king, right? He's not fully recognized yet. He's not there yet, but that's who's supposed to be protecting us. He's the one that's supposed to come alongside of us and take care of us. So there's a little hope, but I don't get much from the passage here that there's a lot of hope. Verse 4, it says, When the messengers came to Gilbeth of Saul, of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they wept out loud. Just then, Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen. And he asked, What is wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Then he repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. All right? This is bad news. All right? Again, not much hope here. They're coming to, to Saul to let him know, but there's not a lot of hope here. In fact, they're, they're kind of preparing themselves for the worst outcome. Have you ever done that? Have you ever gone to a situation asking and you, you, you kind of have an inclination that you know the answer and you, you're, you're kind of figuring it's going to be a, a bad one? Yeah. We certainly, we, we, we tend to think the worst, right? We, we, we don't always think the best. Whether it's a situation or somebody we kind of lean towards that. It's a lot easier to lean towards that, that negative result. And they're no different here. They're, they're not thinking that Saul's probably going to help them. And so they're coming and they're kind of preparing their hearts that they're going to be rejected again. Interestingly enough here too, right? I can tell you that Saul is like two-thirds the way of being king, but yet he's out with his oxen, right? He's out plowing the fields. Is this normal for a king? Does a king normally do that? No. I really think that Saul doesn't quite know yet that he's king in his own heart, right? He, everyone tells him he's king, but he's not quite there yet. So he says, I'm just going to keep doing it. He's no, and, and you know, God will hopefully reveal it along the way. And so he's back working the, the farm. He's, he's trying to get his crops ready for the next, next cycle. Again, some time has gone on here since he's first been anointed, since the lot's fallen. But this is not normal for a king. But he's not quite there yet. Verse 6 is really interesting, kind of a highlighted verse. Verse 6 says, When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. This verse baffles me. I'm just going to tell you right now. It kind of a, it's an interesting verse. If you read it again, it says, Saul heard their words, and the Spirit of God came on him powerfully, and he burned with anger. It's not a normal response if God speaks to you, Right? And again, as I read through some of the commentaries, they, they kind of go a couple different options here, but whatever it was, it struck his heart. Now, we can imagine that the Spirit of God spoke to him and, and said, hey, you need to rise up and defend my people. That's, that's my, my, my take on it. That's probably the best interpretation I found of that. But, you know, God doesn't usually provoke us to anger. That, that doesn't work well with a lot of other situations. I don't know about you, but when I get angry, I'm not at my best, right? I don't always make the wisest decisions. My mouth gets way ahead of my brain, and I get in a lot of trouble in a hurry. In fact, I quite often will say things that I shouldn't say out of anger. It's there, but it comes out. Unfortunately, the filter doesn't work very well when I'm mad, when I'm angry. Am I the only one, or 
Yeah, there's a couple. All right, good. All right, I thought I was alone there for a moment, and that's great if you don't have that, but isn't it true? We, we have that same. So it's an interesting verse, but again, God is speaking to him. God is, again, part of that preparation. Remember, Saul's already heard from God. He, he's had those moments where he knows God has, has chosen him, is prophesying and things like that, and yet God speaks to him here with power. Look at his reaction. Verse 7, he took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces and sent the, mess, the pieces by messenger throughout Israel proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of any one of you who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people and they came out together as one. A couple of things here. Most farmers don't kill their, their plow or their oxen or... right. That's not normal. That's, 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 but it's a lot of symbolic in that as well. Right? Saul is making a transition. He is changing from what used to be to what is. I don't know if he realized it or not, but you know, he's, he's leaving that part of his life to go on to the next. PJ's talking about transition and, 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 and moving forward and having to leave things behind. It's kind of the same thing. The interesting part about cutting up into pieces, there was a judge that kind of did the same thing. And if you know your Bible, it wasn't an ox. Unfortunately, it was a concubine, and he did the same thing. And again, that united the country, again, during the time of judges. So whether Saul got that idea from that point in time or came up with his own version of it, I like the ox better than the concubine. It just seems a little bit easier for me to palate. Interesting, too, here he goes, Saul and Samuel. I don't know if Sam, uh, Saul was that smart or not, but boy, that was really good to tag on Samuel on that, right? Remember, they're in transition. Samuel's been the leader up till now. And as far as they know, Samuel is the, he's kind of the spiritual part of the kingship that's coming, again, as they're transitioning. And so to put that on there, that would give him some credibility. Remember, he's still fairly young. He's new in the position. He's not sure of himself. Putting, hey, let me grab this old guy. Let me grab Samuel to, to help speak up for me to be that spiritual part. We're united in this endeavor to protect Israel. He said, I'm not sure Saul was that smart, but at least there he shows pretty good smarts in that one. Interestingly enough, too, when people, the people hear this, right, they unite, right? They, they, they pull together. Remember what I said, there's 12 different tribes and they're scattered all about, they're in different areas and for them to unite and to pull them together is going to take something special. Right? It's not easy to unite people, to bring them together. Especially when they come from different backgrounds, different areas, different walks in life. Right? Pull them together. I, I can't imagine a nation, it's hard enough sometimes even to pull us together at Pointway to do things, right? To be honest, it's, it's not easy. Sometimes it's like herding cats, you know, we're, we're running in a lot of different directions. But pulling a nation together took an act of God. It took a lot to bring that together, right? A good war will do that in some respect, but not always if you're not united. If you're not on the same page, that doesn't work. Again, we can see God's hand in this. This is part of his plan is for them to come together. It says, come together out as one, right, to work together. I also remember part of these tribes. Remember when the, the lot fell to, to Saul, right, the, from the tribe of Benjamin? 
there were 11 other disappointed tribes. And so, and those scoundrels, they're still around, those people who didn't think Saul should be king. So there's a lot going on here for this all to come together. We can kind of read through it really quickly and think, oh, this was no, no biggie, right? This should happen, no problem. Also remember, this all happens within the seven days, because that's all they got. Otherwise, the Amorites are going to come in and gouge out some eyes. So it's really amazing in the, the time frame and all this to take place. Even the messengers going out, right? They're, it's not email, it's not a text, it's not instant, it's on foot. Maybe if there was a donkey around, the donkey would get you there a little bit quicker, but not much. But it's a pretty good area to pull together, to come together and bring, and then to raise up an army. All within seven days. Verse 8 says, When Saul mustered them at Bezrek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000, and those of Judah, 30,000. 300 plus 30, 330 thousand men. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I know we have a really good army, but boy, to muster up that many guys in a short amount of time and get them ready for, for battle, again, they're not expecting a battle, but to be able to do that, again, amazing feat. They, God is obviously behind this. this. This doesn't happen naturally. This would be hard to do, even if they were united, to pull that many forces and get them ready and get them to the spot where the battle is going to take place. I get, my mind kind of has a hard time wrapping around that. How did this all happen? I have that side of my brain, which sometimes gets me in trouble, but it's a, the logistical side, like trying to figure out how things could come into place. And my mind says, how in the world could they pull this off? Right? They're going to an end of the, the country where they're not sure of. They're not sure of the enemy. They're not sure of all the details. They're just moved by God to get there. That's a lot to pull together in a really short amount of time. Verse 9. They told the messengers who had come, say to the men of Jebesh Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jebesh, they were elated. So timing-wise, it's on the, the sixth day. It's, it's right about the battle. So it's, they've done this all within that time, and now they're sending the messengers back and saying, hey, we're going to come help. Hang in there. We're, we're coming. You know, the fact that they went from mourning to elated, that's a, that's a big range of emotions. But again, when you thought there was no hope, and it doesn't take much to give you a, even a little bit of hope, which burst into joy, right? And so word gets back to them and even sets up the time, right? By the heart of the day. It's going to be in the, the middle of the day. No different there, right? The sun gets up and usually the middle of the day, somewhere in that middle quadrant is when things get really warm and hot. Also, it's not the typical time when you want to be, be fighting. But again, this is part of the, the setup, part of the God unfolding this plan, to defeat their enemies. Verse 10. They said to the Amorites, tomorrow we will surrender to you and you can do to us whatever you like. Don't miss this now, right? Now they're, they're talking to the, the Amorites. They're talking to their en enemies and, and they're saying, hey, tomorrow we're going to surrender to you, right? We're going to let you gouge our eyes out is what they're saying here, right? 
Now, we know from the scriptures that this is a trap. Right? They don't know about all the troops coming. They don't know about the help that's coming to rescue them. In fact, they're saying, hey, we're just going to roll over and die. We're just going to give ourselves up. We're going to make this treaty. I call it setting the trap. They're, they're getting them ready. They're, the enemy is expecting to have a, a cakewalk, expecting to, to go in and win. But that's not quite the end of the story. Verse 11, the next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Amorites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Again, Saul's a farmer. Saul's not a, he's an up-and-coming king, but he's no military strategist. He doesn't have the plan all laid out. He doesn't know even all the people that are fighting with him, yet God is really early to divide up into three and to come into a camp and come in at a certain hour, really early in the morning. That third watch was somewhere between 2 and 6 a.m. I know some of you, I've seen some of you in the morning, some of you even at 10 a.m. are still struggling with cup number two or three or more of coffee. I see a few hands raising, being honest, but I know you well enough. Uh, that's the reason we have the coffee right by the door, just to help with that process to get you going in the morning, right? It's an interesting time to do a battle, but again, remember, Saul is new. He's young. He's, this is not something in his own strength. And again, three divisions coming in from three sides, right? The element of surprise, but also even the, the coming in, right? If you're going to take on an enemy, this makes really good strategy, if you, you funnel in together, head on, there's a lot of casualties. You divide up and come around, and so you encompass almost three sides of them and come in from all sides, throwing confusion, throwing, which God uses often with the enemies, is confusion, and they win. In fact, it says so much so that they scattered them, right? They had them hemmed in three sides, they scattered them, they went out the back door, back to their land, but it says that not two of them were together. Right? So, buddies didn't make it, is what it's saying here. One of them didn't make it home. A lot of them. And so we have this great victory. Right? Great victory over an enemy who's coming up from one side of the kingdom, and, and Israel has this great victory. Now what are they going to do with it? Right? Saul's been the leader, but again, he's still an unknown, and... Samuel's obviously there as well. He's the spiritual. They can see how God's worked, but what's going to happen next? Now, if we know the story up till now, right, in Judges, what has happened typically? Great victory, praise, there's a little returning to the Lord, but then it's not long afterwards what happens. They walk away, right? Or someone tries to take credit other than God for the victory. One of those two scenarios happened, and it doesn't end well. Let's see what happens here. Verse 12. The people then said to Samuel, who was, who was it that asked, shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us so that we may put them to death. All right? Interesting enough, where they go to Samuel, right? They didn't go to Saul first. They go to Samuel and say, hey, remember those scoundrels? I keep mentioning them because in a, a group, if there's a, a, another group that's discontented and not part of the group, right? You got to do something with them. And 
the, the thought was, well, we'll just kill them, right? We'll just get rid of them, right? Saul shows a little bit of his heart here, a little bit of his, his uh, future reign as a king. It's not going to always be this way, but at least at this point, Saul is growing in his faith. And he says, no one will be put to death today, for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. Like I said, at this point in history, Saul's a good king. You can make that declaration, right? He's starting out really well. He's giving God the credit. He's showing mercy to his enemies. He consulted Samuel. He's, he's showing some good characteristics of a future king. Things are going well at this point, coming off a of victory. Interesting, Saul has allowed his, his enemies to continue on. You'll see why. If you say Saul, again, remember we're studying Samuel, so we're not going to go all the way into Saul's whole reign, but you'll see a little bit later on down the road where that can become a problem later on. And Saul doesn't always handle that situation the same. But at this point, he's a good king. He's got the, all the markings. He's got all the making of a good king. He's humble. He's recognizing who's really in charge, God. And he shows me mercy. Good qualities, good characteristics to have. If I was doing this on a leadership training, I would really hang on those as leaders because those are good qualities to have as a leader. As elders, as pastors, in your jobs, those are really good qualities to have. Samuel speaks up now. Remember, Samuel's still there. He hasn't gone anywhere yet. He's, he, he's, he's still very much the, the person that people are looking to. In verse 14, it says, Samuel said to the people, come, let's go to Gilead, and there renew the kingship. Right? Renew it. And, and it's not even, renewed's not even really the, the best on him. The lot's fallen to him. He now has a victory, victory. He's united us as a nation. Let's make him king. He's, he's going to be it. There's, there's no turning back at this point. It's a change in leadership here. And so Samuel suggests this. And again, Samuel can't help himself, which is good. He goes to a spiritual place. Gilead was a place where they sacrificed, a place where they could draw together. It was in the country a little bit. It would be easier for more people to come. And so, I mean, Gilgal. Sorry, I, meant, I said the wrong thing. Gilead's the other, other end of things. You know my pronunciation, Gil, Gilgal. There we go. I see it there. I just didn't say it. Gilgal. But it's a place of worship. And it's a place to, 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 before God, install Saul as king. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord, and Saul and all of Israel held a great celebration. Right? They came around him. There's now the, the full recognition. It's full circle. Saul is now the king. Some would call it the coronation, right? The, the celebration. This is it. He is now the king over Israel. And as we've been studying, we're going to actually go into 12 a little bit because remember that other character who we're really studying, not Saul, but Samuel, right? Don't want to forget about him. In fact, chapter 12 has been named the, the, the farewell speech of Samuel, right? It's, uh, he's, he's signing off as his role as a leader. He's going to go into retirement. Anyone here in retirement? Uh, yeah, there are some folks in retirement. I love retired folks, just so you know. 
Because you know why? Because retired folks work sometimes harder than they did when they, they worked otherwise, right? They're busier. They, they volunteer more. They have a little more time. They're in a different phase of life. And so they are great people. I, retired folks are some of my favorite people. Not that I have favoritisms. I did remember James, all right? And Bryce is back there giving me the, the look like, hey. But I really do appreciate retired folk. They have a lot of gifts. And so Samuel's in the same spot. He's going to retire from his role as leader. But as you see, he's not going to stop. He's going to keep working for the Lord. 12 verse 1 says, Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you have said to me and set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I am old and gray. I can relate. And my sons are here with you. I've been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand, testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I've done any of the things, I will make it right. Interesting, it's kind of a, a confession, but it's also a, hey, test me, right? You know me. That's what Samuel's saying. I've, I've, I've been faithful from the beginning. Now, again, we know Samuel's not been perfect. The fact that his two sons and there's been some, some trouble there, and Samuel's not always acted appropriately, but by and large, his ministry has been without blame. And again, he wouldn't put these questions out there if he didn't know the answer. I think they're called rhetorical questions, but I'm, you know, I'm not good at that. So, right? He knows, and he hopes he knows what the answer is. But if there is, if there is someone that, that has something that he's taken or he's done something wrong, he says, hey, tell me and I will make it right. Samuel has integrity. What a great quality. Again, if I was teaching this from a leadership perspective, that would be another one. I'd certainly want to add on there, that integrity. And then the people's response back here, and we're going to end this here this morning. But again, it's a taste of what's to come in a couple of weeks. But verse 4, the people's response is, you've not cheated or oppressed us. You have not taken blameless from anyone's hand. So he is found blameless before the people at this point. Right, that's what they're saying about him. I think there was two purposes in this. And hear me out. They're just theories. I, I may be wrong, and you certainly can disagree. But one purpose was for Samuel to clear his conscience and make sure, hey, I've done a good job, and now that you have a new king, right? Shift the power. Saul's the one you should go to from, from now on. He's going to be the, the leader, the head of the nation. Makes sense. The other part I think he does this is for Saul's sake. <clears throat> he's hoping that Saul's going to be able to say the same thing at the end of his life. Remember, Saul's fairly young, right? And there's always that, that transition from the older to the younger generation. And again, if you've got a couple of words to say and only a small amount of time, you want to make them impactful, this would be impactful, I would hope, to Saul. Right? Saul's probably still looking up to Samuel and say, hey, you've led for a long time, you've done this well. I want to be like that. I want to be able to, at the end of my time, to say the same thing, right? I've not cheated anyone. I've followed the Lord. I've not accepted brides. I've not been corrupted, but I've been proven faithful. 
So those are my two theories. Again, you can disagree with me on that, but I, I think you can see that or at least understand that from the text. So all that being said this morning, as we've finished through 11 and started into 12, and we'll pick up the story later on in a couple of weeks, what can we take from that? What can we take from this passage that we can apply to our own lives or at least be reminded of? Again, God's faithfulness, that's the, the never changing, that's the always. But beyond that, one of the things that I put down was unity, right? Being united. Right here at Point Way, our smaller groups, being united. Hopefully it doesn't take a battle to get that point. And we're not. It's not here. But unity is a powerful theme. Paul uses it often in the New Testament, right? Keeping the churches united. Not getting distracted, not getting off. So unity is important. Second, where does that power need to come from? From God, right? God is the one that unites us. God is the one that speaks to us. God is the one that tells us what to do next. And with that, who gets the credit? God. Some of you are pointing upward, yes, right? Always make sure you give God the credit. Amazing to me, and it's still amazing that despite us, God uses us. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to. And that's a great thing. So there's a couple of things this morning just as reminders and also as that integrity and leadership, if you're in those roles, to, to keep those in mind as well this week. Bow with me, please. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word that continually points us to you. Lord, I thank you as believers in you and what you did on the cross for our sins, Lord, that through your resurrection, Lord, that we can have new life in you. Lord, we do give you the credit. We also ask that you're saving us. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we also ask that you would just continue to lead us, continue to guide us, and Lord, continue to use us for your purpose. Lord, help us to be that conduit this week as that we get opportunities that we would point people to you. That our lives would speak of the greatness that you've done in our lives, Lord, and that we give you all the credit and the glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.